You are listening to the Coming Up for Air podcast hosted by Air Moms Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. This podcast is sponsored by alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up for Air brings together two wonderful people, both of whose adult sons are in recovery from opiate addiction. Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall have been through years of their loved one's active addiction. They have come to understand the direct link between taking care of yourself and being able to help your loved one. During these conversations, Lori and Annie address the questions and concerns brought up by Allies and Recovery members. And now, Coming Up for Air with Lori McDougall and Annie Highwater. everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. Today we have an extra special guest and uh, let me just say hello to Annie and maybe Annie can go and introduce our guest. Hello and welcome everyone. Our guest is Isabel, uh, works with Allies in Recovery and she will be conducting the podcast interview questioning us today. So welcome Isabel. You want to tell us a little bit about what you do and then what you're going to do with this podcast? Sure. So what I do for Allies in Recovery is actually pretty... Pretty varied, um, but my main my main duties include uh, editing all of all of our blog material, and also working with uh, members and on membership issues. So it's it's vast, but um, and it also goes into all sorts of minute detail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been with Allies in Recovery. I think this is my third year, and I'm I'm quite happy to be a part of the team. So also happy to be interviewing you two today. You've had many special guests uh, over, the, over the many months of your podcast, and today you are the special guest. So uh, our hosts are our guests. I wanted to uh, start just by throwing out a couple of um, silly questions, actually, just so we can get to know you a little bit off of the top, well, completely off the topic, actually, of addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So maybe we'll start with you, Annie. Sure. Um, so you can either answer yes, no, or yes or no, and then add a little something if, if uh, the spirit moves you. Coffee or tea? Water. <laughs> Those are rare. I'm, I'm not really a coffee drinker once in a while um, or a specialty kind of coffee or a green tea, but, but typically I try to drink a gallon of water a day and I stick to that. So that's kind yeah. of become my pref- preference no matter where I am. Sounds good. Uh, showers or bath? More frequently showers, but I like both. And I like to sit on, on the edge of the bathtub after a really difficult day with my feet in the tub. There's just something about that. And sometimes my son would come in and put his in with me. And that was a really good time to kind of vent about our day and what was going on. And then kind of his feet take up the whole bathtub. So, <laughs> you know, that was, that's just a, a little additional self-care thing we do. But typically showers twice a day. Okay. You're a clean lady. Uh, Are you an early riser or late? Definitely a morning person. I'm up at five. I have my morning kind of spiritual practice of walking a mile, and that's when I meditate or pray or kind of unload what I hope the day will be and anything I wait. You know, my mind wakes up racing when I hit the floor. So I like to get up early and set my mind and come to terms with the day before I even face it. So definitely early. It's a good time of day. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, favorite favorite movie genre? Ooh, um, goodness, probably documentary. 
had a feeling you were going to say that. <laughs> Do you have a, a recent one that you really loved? Um, I haven't watched too much, too many show programs lately. I've been so busy and wrapped up. Goodness. I, I can't, well, I watched a docu-series on Showtime called The Trade, which is filmed in my hometown. And it's actually about the opiate epidemic here and what the Franklin County Sheriff's Department and Rick Minard, who was ironically on our podcast, is featured in that. So that's about the best one I've seen lately and, and very timely and relatable. The Trade. The Trade okay. on Showtime. You can also, I think, find it on YouTube. It's okay. really good. It features Columbus, Atlanta, and then cartel in Mexico. And it varies between the three stories and shows families. It shows law enforcement. It shows first responders. And it shows the poppy fields and what the, the work the cartel mm-hmm. are doing. All right. Quote work. Sounds good. <laughs> I suppose you can say that. Yeah. Right. Um, final question for you. Um, you have a, oh, hmm. I had two actually. If someone honks at you, is it because you're going too slow or for another reason? Probably too slow, definitely, or that I'm distracted and still sitting at a red light. Okay. (laughs) In your thoughts. Um, Thank you. So moving on to Lori. Lori, sweet or savory? Ooh. Um, Definitely savory. Yeah, I like my Doritos. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I prefer salty. I mean... very particular about my sweets, uh, but not very particular about about savory. It's funny because I think you just answered uh, another one of my questions at the same time, which was your favorite food that's not good for you. <laughs> Ooh. Is that Ooh. Doritos? No. Mm. No. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> that would be, I have a lot of those. And you know what? And I'm going to say probably my favorite food that is not good for me is going to be sweet. Mm-hmm. And it's baklava. Baklava. Uh-huh. It's a Greek pastry, is that right? It is. It's a Greek pastry with nuts and honey. And I will say it's very salty at the same time. Ah. Um, but yes, when I was pregnant, our local grocery store used to sell baklava. And I can remember going grocery shopping and taking the baklava out and eating as much as I could before I went and got the rest of the groceries. So, yes. You have a special relationship with mm-hmm. that baklava. What's you might favorite? say it's an addiction. I didn't say it. <laughs> um, do you have a favorite sport to watch? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Hockey. I'm a big hockey fan. I played hockey. I love hockey. Hockey, hockey, hockey. Bruins. Um, what about a favorite game to play? Board game or cards or other? That's a good question. I have a quite a few of them, actually. We play like Mexican train with dominoes and cribbage. I love Trivial Pursuit. So I think I like a lot of board games. Mm. Yeah. Do you have a pet peeve? Ooh, a pet peeve. I I think I probably have a lot of them. You know what? I have a pet peeve in that when people move my things, it drives me crazy. So don't move my things. (laughs) I place them there for a well thought out reason. So please don't move them. I will keep that in mind. Okay. Given that there's several thousand miles in between us, I probably yeah. risk, not at risk of doing so anytime soon, but you never know. I am warned. Thank you. That was fun. And um, 
we are going to move back into uh, the usual topic and hopefully from a few different angles. There's not exactly usual since, since you are uh, always coming at a different angle each time. But uh, I hope that some of the questions that I asked you today will, will be able to um, open up a few, a few different lines of thinking. So, Annie, if you had 30 seconds to present craft to a family member who had never heard of it, what would you say? Well, it would depend on if they had a relative in crisis right at the moment or not. But certainly the thing I always mention the most, because it, for me, it's been the most effective, there's two dynamics of it. And that's the changing how you respond and not engaging in the arguments and responding differently. And the other thing is writing down treatment centers or numbers to call on a Hallmark card, on an index card, on something and leaving it with somebody who's addicted, whether they live with you or not. Um, typically that works well when they've been put out of the home, leave it with lunch. You take them, put it in their backpack because um, I've left it with uh, homeless people on the side of the street because in that moment of clarity that passed so quickly, Oh, this is miserable. I don't want to live this life anymore. What do they have in their hands to call? Typically they want to call, they think of calling a safe family member that they're terribly estranged from, but having something in hand, I've seen it work so many times where I've, I've told a parent that who said, we just dropped a tr our child off and she's sleeping behind a grocery store or he's sleeping at a gas station. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, just leave that note. You never know. And I mean, it's surprised me, you know, in a great way that I'll get a call back saying he called the number and went into treatment the next day. And that doesn't always work, but it's powerful enough that mm. that's, you know, I've taken more than 30 seconds to explain, but those would be the two dynamics that drop your weapons, respond differently and give them access to numbers to call when they are out of your sight and care and you don't know what's going on. Those things mm -hmm. powerfully can change the dynamics. Mm -hmm. I just want to point out here to listeners that Annie uh, published a, a great post on the discussion blog, unless it was on the, I think it was on the discussion blog a few weeks back, uh, which I think we called a love letter to allies in recovery. And that, that is the story of uh, one, one story of, of Annie doing just what she just described. I recommend that you check it out. Lori, if you had 30 seconds to present craft to a legislator or a treatment facility director, what would you say? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, so a legislator. I would say that craft is a way to interact and communicate with your loved one in a way that takes the chaos out of your life and allows you to guide your loved one into either recovery, into treatment, or into just a better environment where they are more likely to be successful uh, becoming sober. Great. Thank you. Did you want to add something? I, I guess kind of, kind of piggy, piggybacking on what Annie said, um, I call those moments of time when a loved one is being aware that maybe they don't want to live this life anymore. Uh, I call those like a windows of opportunity. Mm -hmm. And it's in, in craft allows us the opportunity to recognize windows of opportunity because I think we miss it a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so to recognize those windows of opportunity and to, uh, to take action when they happen. And um, yet another aside to listeners, you can, these are also referred to on the AIR website as wishes and dips. You can look that topic up on the discussion blog. So this is a question for both or either of you. Why are you doing what you do to promote craft? 
Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. Why am I doing what I'm doing? I'm doing this because in my journey, in my personal journey and my struggles with dealing with substance use disorder, the more traditional way of dealing with substance use was to let go, right? You hear this all the time. And, and it's a very, for me, it was a very hopeless message. You're powerless over the disease and there's absolutely nothing you can do. And I tend to be a very honorary person. I tend to kind of buck the system a lot. And I also don't take things that are just told to me and just believe it. I had to go out and get educated. And so I came to the conclusion on my own that that there were two sides to it. That, yeah, I'm powerless over the disease, but am I truly powerless over everything? Or, you know, the three C's, you didn't cause it, you can't cure it, but you can contribute to it. But you can also contribute to them getting better. Um, And it was having this attitude that kind of made me do the research. And I found another philosophy out there, which was craft, that really aligned more with how I thought. I decided that One, I did go to the Allies and Recovery website. I've watched the videos, the learning modules. I've done them. I practiced them, and I found success with them. I found it did bring down the chaos in my house. It did open up huge lines of communication. And I also wasn't, I wasn't naive in thinking that because I was doing this stuff that my loved one would absolutely end up in treatment or recovery, but I did know that this was also a way to help calm me down and it helped me find some serenity and peace. And it also helped me find some strength in knowing that I was holding to my own values and ethics and integrity. And um, I, I did find success in that. I also happened to be one of the lucky ones. Uh, My son did go into recovery and now he's in recovery for a little over two years, but I'm also working to get craft and allies and recovery out there because I believe in the, um, in the message, in the techniques, and I really want and hope for other families that I know are struggling the way I did. I really want them to be able to find peace and serenity and better communication with their loved one. Before we go on, let's thank Allies in Recovery for sponsoring Coming Up for Air. Members who join Allies in Recovery can communicate directly with us. Many ask us questions we end up addressing right on the podcast. Members can also request topics they would like for us to cover. Join today at alliesinrecovery.net. Now, back to the show. Annie, do you have anything to add to that? I would um, agree that it was a way to calm me down as well and to put instructions in my hand that were more hopeful, that were less shaming. Dominique had talked about how you always hear detach, and that's never really clearly identified. And I remember being told to detach from a friend who said it kind of casually, well-meaning, but casually, and she, her three-year-old was asleep in bed every night, and I didn't know where my son was. So that advice 
hit me like a ton of bricks and, and, you know, didn't produce good emotion within me. So craft tells you to attach when people are spiraling and at their worst with loving kindness. And, you know, there are things you can do not to attach to their consequences, their behavior, to condone it, allow it, ignore it, none of that. But it was different steps to take that weren't about shaming and turning my back on, you know, someone that I love as they're at their worst. And also the reason I do this work personally, I believe craft craft works, but I also spread a message of hope is because I went through it completely alone for the most part. And I know what it's like to suffer in silence or to suffer silently and to have to go to work and fold laundry and get through your day. And you've got an elephant on your shoulders every day and you're in terror and despair and primal fear. So we're able to present a message that, hey, families can recover. You know, our loved ones found recovery, even if that could change or not. But there is hope and there are steps you can take to further the situation. That's why I do it. Mm. So to me, it seems as though you have both found your life calling or at least one of your life callings through the traumatic events of having your children be addicted. If the opiate crisis and addiction in general were resolved once and for all, what could you see yourself doing next? I can answer that. Um, Dysfunction is never going to go away. It can improve, but there's always going to be uh, the need to navigate life and the effects of people and circumstances. Life is unpredictable, and sometimes it you know, unloads all over you. It can drop you to your knees in a day. And that doesn't always have to do with addiction. The behaviors can be, you know, unlimited to other things. I think I will always speak a message of overcoming adversity and having hope and fighting forward and getting back up and setting goals and working on yourself. And, you know, addiction is part of that, but that's not the only part of the story. There's overcoming your own heartache and tragedies and trauma and weaknesses. So I I think I will always do this work on some level. You know, it's, for me, that's very interesting question. I I have to be honest with you, Isabel. I think I'm getting old (laughs) and reinventing myself again for, you know, uh, another time. I mean, honestly, I feel like I've reinvented myself multiple times in my life. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I am, I'm in college. I'm in, uh, at Boston University uh, trying to get a clinical social work degree. But I'm actually thinking about changing, going straight for my doctorate in psychology, and I really want to focus on the neurobiology piece of it, and um, because I, I feel that it has huge applications, and it's a part of this disease that isn't really well studied, I have a funny feeling that that would lead me down other paths, uh, attaining that kind of a degree. That would probably lead me down other paths. But also, I have an incredibly artsy side to me, and I would probably do a heck of a lot more painting and wallpapering and all sorts of stuff. So traveling, that's the other thing, traveling, Hmm. lots of traveling. I was wondering if the work that you each are doing today corresponds in any way to a vision that you may have had for yourselves as a child. Mine does. I knew I would write. And while it started when I was eight years old, I had a school teacher that took interest in me and she knew I came from 
I was in a neighborhood in a school that was somewhat well-to-do and I came from poverty and dysfunction, craziness, chaos. And she would take me out to a creek sometimes when she could tell I was overwhelmed and say, I want you to write. You have this big vocabulary for a child. I want you to write and be very descriptive everything you see in the trees and with birds. And so she taught me to kind of calm myself down or separate from the crowd. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily acting out, but I would become very withdrawn and she would recognize that. And she taught third grade as well. So I had her for two years and she just fed into that, developing that as a talent, but not only a talent, a way to self-care and self-soothe. So I had these visions then that I would grow up and write as an adult. And it kind of came full circle when all of this happened. And I started more telling my story. And then it turned, I wrote an article and it kind of took off from there where it became this and then that and then books. So I didn't know that I'd be writing about family addiction or family dysfunction or most people that were in my life. I didn't open up what I was going through at home. So I didn't know that I would be that open. It kind of happened quickly, but I knew in some way I would talk. That's funny, Annie, because I, I, I can see that, that that would be myself. Some In some way, I would be talking. Um, writing? No, never, ever. I can't stand writing. It's torture for me, but I still do it anyway because I think I can dig deeper into my feelings. And I think that's what needs to come out when we're talking about substance use disorder. But if you had told me that I would be writing anything when I was a kid, I would have been like, absolutely not. But then I've also turned out as an adult to be everything that I never thought I would be as a child. I became a math teacher. I was a high school math teacher. I was a math major in college. And if you had told me that when I was a kid, I would have laughed at you. (laughs) So no, none of this is anything I ever saw for myself, except for maybe the talking. (laughs) Seriously, it's it's true. You know, math teacher, no. You know, writing, no. Working with people with a substance use disorder or their families, no. Never would have, never would have thought it. Mm-hmm. You are both uh, extremely focused in your own way on self-care. In, in my thinking about this, I thought to myself that self-care is, is kind of like a catch-all phrase that encompasses many, many aspects. It's one of the essential ingredients of craft, of the craft method, which we teach on alliesinrecovery.net. Um, most of us feel, though, a fair amount of resistance to self-care, and many of us, me included, are at times extremely resistant. At first, is it, it, it's really hard to see the, the link between taking care of ourselves, and by that I mean our body, our mind, our spirit, anything, any way we can take care of ourselves, and the connection between that and being successful in helping a loved one who struggles with addiction. My question for you is, why are we so incredibly resistant to the idea of self-care? Do you think this is just about our resistance as human beings to change in general? Or is it something beyond that, something more specific? Well, I, I, honestly, I think, with, I think with substance use disorder, part of the issue with the self-care piece of it, I think it's multifaceted, I guess. So I think we're not used to doing that. Right. I think as mothers and and dads raising kids, 
we really don't take care of ourselves a lot of the time. And we just kind of get caught up in life. And so when you get smacked in the face with something like substance use disorder, you want answers right now. Tell me what to do to make this better. And putting your own self-care on the back burner is what you honestly believe you have to do. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's not about me. It's about getting this other person the help that they needed. And it's really, really difficult to see how taking care of yourself has an effect on on the person struggling with substance use disorder. It's incredibly difficult when you're in chaos, you can't think straight and you need, you feel you need immediate answers. And, and I, I felt that way. I felt like I needed, I remember going to my first meetings and walking in and I thought someone was going to tell me what to do and I was going to go and do it. And I was going to be on the path to getting everything was going to be better and realizing one that's not going to happen. And when they started saying, you know, well, you need to take care of you. I did not get it. I didn't. Now in hindsight, and we're talking a couple of years later, I totally get it. How can I help somebody else if I'm a mess? And yes, I do think that it's very much a part of being a human being and uh, not liking change because anytime there's change, we become uncomfortable. We're not used to it. This is something different. So yeah, I think it, it really does have a connection to that. I definitely think it, it has, it's all connected. You know, I think about I think about how we as family members will deal with our loved one when we're first there, you know, first experiencing it. And we're all like, well, he needs help. He's got to get help. How come he doesn't ask for help? All he needs to do is ask for help. But yet when we say, well, have you gone for help? We go, oh, well, well I don't have a problem. I, you know, not me. I don't have a problem. I don't need any help. He needs help. He's got the disease. You know, no, you need help. <laughs> we all need help. But right. So it, it is. Easy. It's always easier to to push something off when it's possible onto someone else or to, right to point point a finger uh, or, to not or, look at yourself. Right. Or in we don't we don't teach that. We don't teach that to our kids, and we don't model it. Right. When I have a problem, I try and deal with it in a, you know, uh, in a very heroic, you know, I'll take care of my own problems. I never ask for help, although that's not true now. You know, I do ask for help a lot. But I mean, when our kids are growing up, how do we model that for them? We don't even say we we tell our kids things like um, you can't do drugs. It'll ruin your life, you know, but we never say. If you do find yourself using drugs and you find yourself having a problem with drugs, you can always come to me and we will find the treatment that you need to make you better. If you reach out, we will be there for you. We don't, we don't stress that enough and we should. And let's just take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by CCSHM, the Community Coalition for a Safe and Healthy Morris, whose mission is to prevent and reduce substance use throughout the lifespan through collaboration, education, and community-wide change. CCSHM partners with CARES, 
the Center for Addiction Recovery, Education, and Success, to bring prevention and recovery services to communities throughout Morris County and New Jersey. CCSHM and CARES are projects of Morris County Prevention is Key. Go to safehealthymorris.org or caresnj.org or call 973-625-1998. I'd like to add to the self-care. I agree with that about change. I just read the quote from Mark Twain that said, the only person who likes change is a wet baby. We don't typically (laughs) rush to change. We can learn to adapt to it and try to kind of expect it. I think also, um, you know, Lori's right. When a parent first comes into the situation, you know, it's almost impossible to tell somebody this is going to be about you recovering because they're in such crisis. They can't hear that. You kind of have to spoon fed that and they have to unravel the madness to come to that themselves because they want the bleeding to stop and they're, you know, it's life and death issues. So I agree with that. I also think sometimes we're resistant to self-care because for me personally, I was programmed to believe a certain amount of self-care was selfish. You know, it's like that kind of goes into what Lori was saying as, as moms or whatever and with crisis going on. But, you know, I lived in crisis. I was born into crisis and conflict. We, we didn't come out of stress my entire life. And I spent most of my adulthood repeating those patterns until I learned not to. I didn't learn to stop and take a pause and consider my teen years, consider my 20s, consider the choices I made, consider my part in things. So until I started working a program for myself to recover and self-reflect and apply therapy and taking a break and taking a walk, those types of things, I thought taking care of myself, especially in crisis or, you know, whatever the family dynamics were, they weren't about me tending to myself. That would be selfish. So I had to come out of that programming. Mm -hmm. Um, This is um, something that coming up for air listeners, myself included for sure, appreciate about the two of you is your willingness and your ability to be an open book about your experience. You are at times brutally honest with yourselves and with others about where you are, what you struggle with, what you're feeling. And this is a precious gift to anyone who listens to you or reads your articles that are aimed at families who are touched by addiction. We can relate to your humanness because you let it out. You have the courage to be vulnerable and this is disarming. Even when we are not ready to be vulnerable like you, we appreciate coming into contact with people like you who are a bit further down that particular path. I wanted to ask, how can we as a society promote this type of openness and vulnerability that result in true growth and the breaking down of barriers? Can you name a few things that you'd like to see happening? I think it begins with you. It begins with me. That's where it comes back to. You know, one thing that, um, you know, not everything is faith-based, but for me, it personally is. And one thing I pray for, for people who affect me or impact me, or if I'm enraged because of, is I always pray they will be blessed with the gift of self-awareness and kind, healthy introspection. And I think that's kind of where it begins, just getting very honest with yourself, how things are and where you're at. I'm just not one to pretend 
things are a certain way if they're not. I'm not, I've never been one to put up an appearance that life is going well. I, I'm not one to bleed all over everybody either. I'm very private, but I'm just not one to fake it. So I think just getting honest with yourself and what is going on, what might possibly be going on, that it's a possibility for you and your home and your family. It all begins with that vulnerable, open, humble honesty. I think that is the basis, the foundation for everything. Can you just repeat the question for me? My question is, how can we as a society promote the type of openness and vulnerability uh, that result in true growth and in the breaking down of barriers? So basically, to me, this question says, how do we break down stigma? Because I think stigma is the number one barrier to um, families asking for help, as well as our loved ones with SUD asking for help. And so I think it's going to take a lot of people stepping forward um, and saying, no, I'm dealing with this issue too, right? And getting raw and getting open. You have to, you have to do it. I see people writing obituaries that are, are frank and honest uh, and fearless. And I think that helps. And I think that we need a lot more people coming forward because I see people in the community that I'm working with now, I see people going to meetings on the other side of the state just so that their neighbors won't see them walking into these meetings. And I think we've got to kind of get beyond that. I don't know why I am the way I am. I don't know why stigma does not. I I just am like, no, and it's it's not going to affect me. I kind of don't care uh, because I truly know in my heart that it's a disease. And I truly know that, that just getting out there and, and getting it off my chest and letting people know and see that, look, it can happen to you. It happened to me, right? It can happen to anybody is a way to kind of help others break down the barrier for themselves. And they may not be ready right now, you know, you know, if that's if that's what it takes for them right now to get to a meeting like driving across the state so that nobody else sees them fine. Maybe one day they'll be strong enough to go to the meeting in their own town or they'll be strong enough to tell their neighbor that they're going through this. And what I have found is the more I open my mouth and I talk about it, the more people are open with me and start confessing that they are in a similar situation. And they and I see that they start to see that they're not alone. That concludes my questions for you too. And I want to thank you wholeheartedly for, for your uh, answers, for everything that you shared today and everything that you share every time you record a podcast for the um, Allies in Recovery members and the larger community. So thank you. You know what, Isabel? I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. I, I wasn't sure how this was going to go. But I thought, I think now, having, having done this question and answer, I think this was a great, great podcast. Um, you, you came up with some really to-the-point, drive-it-home kind of questions, and I'm really glad that we did this. And I'd like to kind of open it up to some of our listeners. So if you have any questions or maybe we could run some kind of a podcast where we do that, where we just answer maybe some of our listeners' questions. Uh, So I want to kind of put it out there 
to our listeners and they can go, they can get in contact with us through the Allies and Recovery website. Right. Uh, well, there are several ways for members to get in touch with both of you. Uh, the first is when you're on the member site to go to the community menu. Click on the first item there, which is Air Podcast, coming up for air. And you'll see uh, a right-hand column, uh, which has photographs and bios for both Lori and Annie. And at the end of each bio, you'll see a link to send Lori a message or to send Annie a message. And rest assured, uh, anything you send to Lori, if it's for the podcast, will be shared and vice versa. So you only need to send one message. Another simple way of getting in touch with uh, the podcast hosts is under the community menu, uh, use the contact form, which is actually the last item. Contact the AIR team. And anything you send to Annie or Lori or both on that form, we will make sure that they receive. So there you go. Annie, I guess we will talk again in about a week. Yes. Thanks so much, Isabel. And thank you for everyone listening. See you next Cheers. time coming up for air. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Coming Up For Air podcast with Annie Highwater and Lori McDougall. If you're interested in reading Annie's book, Unhooked, A Mother's Story of Unhitching from the Roller Coaster of Her Son's Addiction, it's available online, or you can simply follow the link at the bottom of one of Annie's blog posts on alliesinrecovery.net. Coming Up For Air is sponsored by Allies in Recovery, the online home for families facing the addiction of a loved one. Allies in Recovery can help you understand your loved one's struggle and offers effective communication strategies that encourage treatment and discourage use. In addition to interactive e-learning, Allies in Recovery offers expert advice, podcasts, tools for evaluating treatment options, recent news items, and access to a large community of families coping with issues similar to yours. Join alliesinrecovery.net today. That's alliesinrecovery, all one word, dot net. Thank you for listening. Our theme music was performed and composed by cellist Eric Corey.